0: What's up guys, welcome to another edition of the Clinical Mastermind Podcast, I am your host Dan Pringle, and today I talk about the important role of the neck in shoulder problems. What's up guys, welcome to another edition of the Clinical Mastermind Podcast, I'm your host Dan Pringle, and I'm back! Uh, with another one of our zoom sessions here for you in podcast form and this one is regarding the shoulder now I teased it as a shoulder session for everybody in the in the Zoom call, and quickly they realized that when I said part one of shoulder problems, I was actually referring to the neck. I was referring to the many different types of connections and relationships between the two, and how we need to understand the role of the neck in all shoulder problems. And so I started to talk about the biomechanical relationships, the anatomical relationships, uh, thinking about the neurological, and the vascular, and the fascial, and how they all play a big role, and how the, the body experiences symptoms, has proprioception, the control of the scapula. So suddenly what started as something that everyone thought was going to be, a, be about the glenohumeral joint ended up talking about everything but that and still provided so much valuable insight into how we understand and treat the shoulder, but also with some context about how we might consider that in the neck from a treatment standpoint, from an assessment standpoint, and from a functional movement standpoint. So a really cool episode there because of all of that relationship. And if you pay close attention to that, that podcast as you, as you call, follow through here today, You're going to realize pretty quickly that it translates to many other parts of the body and thinking about the bigger picture of not just where the symptoms are, but the really broad implications from a movement, anatomical, neurological standpoint that may be involved in someone's pain problem that they're presenting with. So I really encourage you to listen to this one a couple of times and reflect on how it might influence your ability to treat many other places in the body. I'm still doing these Zoom sessions. They're happening twice a week on Wednesday afternoons and Friday afternoons at 4.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Please check it out. To get the link, you can send me a message uh, on Instagram at dpringle.physio. You can also email me, dan at clinicalmastermind.com, and check out the website, clinicalmastermind.com. If you would prefer the video version of this Zoom and some of the other ones that I've already done, You can access them on my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash dpringle, with no E. That's D-P-R-I-N-G-L. And uh, I'd love for you to give me a subscribe when you're over there as well. Last but not least, please pass on uh, my information, my podcast, the video stuff, uh, follow me wherever you can and try to spread it to as many people as possible. We're really trying to grow this, this network of people who are thinking differently, who are investing the energy and time they have now to become better practitioners for the long term, for their sake and for the sake of their patients. So please make sure you're connecting with us in one way or another. I would really love to hear from you. And with that being said, please enjoy the podcast. I want to start by saying that, uh, again, shoulder's complex. There's a lot going on, um, and the idea was to start with step one. So where do we start when trying to understand a shoulder problem? And, uh, and you know, there's, there's a lot of different answers. If I did a poll, I was trying to set the poll up, but still haven't figured that, that out. Actually, we can do it this way. Okay, um, in the, the, uh, the group chat right now, I want everybody to type in. We got. We'll give you one minute. I want you to type in the number one, the first thing you should consider in understanding a shoulder problem. So go ahead, put on the answers right now, and we'll see what everyone's got. Just throw it in there quickly for me. All right, we got posture. We got range of motion. Well, someone's gonna say strength, probably. Motive injury. Okay, Mark. All right, I like that. Um, what else we got here, Mike? Mobility. Okay. Okay. Scapular rhythm. Their job scapular pattern pain pattern stability okay all right all right these are all these are all good like they're, they're all kind of hitting uh, a point quick history yeah absolutely obviously we want to know generally about what's going on I'm going to kind of um you know you need to think about that absolutely and, and no matter what we're going to consider what's actually going on uh like what the actual symptom is right so yeah we're going to say you know when does it hurt or where does it hurt or did you fall on it like that's It wasn't quite what I was getting to. So, again, no wrong answer. Uh, Tendinopathy tendinopathy versus nerves. Again, kind of getting where I'm headed. So, in my opinion, one of the first things we need to understand when we're addressing the shoulder problem is the status of the neck. So, did I see neck anywhere? I got tendon versus nerve. I want to understand what's going on there. And I'm going to explain why. So, for a lot of people, when we start to think about shoulder problems you'll hear the term did you rule out the neck did you clear the neck um, I don't know what the hell that means because if you're asked me when should I start to consider a neck at uh, the neck as part of a shoulder problem it is instantly. It is always every single time. And why would I consider it to be relevant in the case? Well, because of the massive anatomical connectivity that there is. There's fascial connections. There's biomechanical connections. There's, um, you know, relationships with the, the control of the scapula and the coracoid process and everything in the AC joint and SC joint as well. We're talking about all the peripheral nerves on the surface that provide sensory information that go to the joints as well as across the skin in that area. Uh, and then we're also talking about the major nerves that provide sensory and motor information to the whole upper quadrant and those are all coming from the neck so by definition if someone has a shoulder problem they also have a neck problem as i talked about a little bit uh last week in the in the one that we talked about the hip problems uh, we need to come up with a hierarchy of targets to treat we need to kind of come up with a list of the most valuable targets and then do our best to target them specifically every single time someone has a shoulder problem The neck is somewhere on that list, by definition, based on everything I just listed before. The question is, is it high on our list or is it low on our list? And I want to talk a little bit about that today. And that will, again, kind of guide us into a conversation. So scenarios where it's going to be high on the list are going to be, number one, if there's any previous uh, injury there. That's going to make the whole region much more vulnerable to everything because of this, the sensory, the motor, the vascular function that changes as a result of to an injury of the neck. We have to take that into in consideration every single time. Uh, so anyone with an old neck injury, whiplash, just a lot of neck tightness and stiffness. Um, if we're looking at range of motion and we're seeing restrictions in even a couple different planes, even if it's more on the other side. We have to understand that there's an integration of information that's going to impact the function of everything coming off the cervical plexus and everything attaching to the cervical spine, which is everything in the shoulder and everything in the arm for that matter, too. So instantly we have to think that the neck plays a role. Whether we choose to address it first or need to address it first is a different story. But that's the number one scenario where we actually want to spend time um, trying to legitimately focus on the neck and understand it is when they've had an old injury or a major complaint there. Um, The next thing we want to consider is when the, when the injury doesn't seem to match the symptoms. So the case there is when somebody has had a very clear trauma, they fell water skiing or they were skiing or they, you know, fell down a flight of stairs or something of significant, A man, they got hit in football, they fell in football and landed on the side of their shoulder. Okay, great. Trauma. And if the response matches, then okay, that that makes sense. We can start to say, all right, well, maybe it's a little bit more of a local problem. It doesn't mean the the, the, the neck didn't play a role at all, but it probably plays less of a significant role than a structural injury and damage to the local region of the shoulder. That being said, uh, there's a lot of cases that don't match. There could be a minor trauma. Like I walked into the wall and it's been painful for six months. Or, you know, yeah, I was like throwing a baseball with my son for half an hour. And since then, I've been able to move my, my arm. Okay, so any of those cases where the event doesn't match the symptom, that's when we need to think, okay, where does the neck play a, a, a role and understand that. And for some of you guys who, who um, were there when I did the Physio Night Out event at my clinic in um, August of last year, I talked about the million dollar question. The million dollar question is basically the, the idea of if we took a thousand people, regular pull from the you know, natural uh, group of people from the general population, and had them do the same movement a thousand times, would we expect that to lead to an injury, to the symptoms that we're experiencing? So if a thousand people threw a baseball for 30 minutes, would we expect them to all end up with tendinitis, tendinitis and a flare up of their shoulder? Probably not. So let's look deeper. Um, would a thousand people um, who all were painting for the weekend suddenly all experience that pain? Probably not. What about people who start doing, it's relevant now, people are doing home workouts, so they're doing a bunch of push-ups because that's the only form of exercise. Would we expect all of them to develop uh, a, a shoulder pain that lasts for months on end? Probably not. Yeah, maybe it's sore for two to four days, but we wouldn't expect anything beyond that unless the body was already vulnerable. And if the body's vulnerable, if the shoulder's vulnerable... Instantly, the neck is something that we have to start paying attention to. And that is that is like a non-start. Like, I can't have a conversation with anybody if they don't understand that principle. So get that into your head right away that we have to think about the, sh- the, the neck in any of those cases. Um, so if those are the two things we see, and then the last piece I'll, I'll add is, is more chronic type stuff. Obviously, again, we know chronic stuff means that there's all sorts of sensitization at the level of the spine, at the level of the brain, and there's a psychosocial component. So if we are experiencing having someone with chronic pain, with absolutely no trauma of any kind or no inciting event, then 100% of the time the neck is involved. And when I hear something like that or any of those other cases, I move the neck further up in my hierarchy of things that we need to treat. And that's, that's how we have to start from there. Um, so once we get into that and get that wrapped up, wrapped up in our in our minds, then we can move forward to what I want to go through now, which is a little bit of the uh, other anatomical uh, connections that we've got in that region and and how we can influence it and and why we should pay so much attention to it. Let me see if I can pull this off now. Uh, I'm going to share my screen for my iPad. Obviously, we're going to zoom in on the shoulder and the neck area. And you know that I can't start when I see just this. It it's not complete for me. It's never gonna be complete, but you know that I need to go here right away and add my lovely peripheral nerves to the discussion. Um, I'm also gonna remove platysma. It is not super functional here. Um, so we can start to reveal some of the, the relevant structures as it relates to what's going on with uh, with neck and shoulder pain. Actually, on a sidebar, you'll rarely hear me say shoulder pain by itself. Unless someone had a specific trauma You're usually going to hear me say neck and shoulder pain. You know, if you ask Brendan or someone, you know Mike, someone I've spent a lot of time working with, they're going to they're going to agree that I rarely say they have shoulder a shoulder problem, it's like, yeah, there's neck and shoulder stuff going on. It's usually kind of the, the, the limit. I also don't usually give them a specific diagnosis. It's more of a functional diagnosis. Everything that went on to, the, to lead to the problem to be where it is and everything we need to do to address it is my diagnosis to my patient. It might be two or three minutes long. It's not a three-word phrase like subacromial impingement. Um, so what I want to highlight are some of the major structures. Uh, that we're gonna deal with. My favorite nerves of the upper extremity are right here, and I'm gonna start there. The supraclavicular nerves, everybody's, people who know me are nodding. Okay, so supraclavicular nerves come off posteriorly to the SCM, and the relevance of that is, look at this broad network of attachment here. Look at how this, this nerve crosses posteriorly, almost the spine of the scapula. All It innervates the AC joint and the SC joint and the glenohumeral joint. And it provides sensory information to the anterior part of the shoulder um, and the lateral neck. The reason this nerve is so relevant is that it's coming right off the area where a lot of people experience a lot of tightness and dysfunction in this area of the lateral neck. They might not have symptoms there. This isn't a place that complains a lot. Usually you'll feel the, the superior angle stuff, the levator, the traps, the rhomboid area. But it's all related to tension along the posterior lateral side of the neck, which incorporates F- problems along the area of the supraclavicular nerves what does this mean for anyone whether you've got manual just soft tissue release whether you've got acupuncture whether you've got uh, you know you're just doing adjustments and that's it um, we need to understand this area every single time and so this kind of quadrant here i'm going to grab a pen here quick fast um, this quadrant here between the upper fibers and traps the scm and the mastoid process this region is going to be really valuable to anybody experiencing neck and shoulder related problems Not only does SCM create a lot of rotational stuff, not only does traps create a lot of dysfunction, both relating to the scapula and the clavicle, but also to the the region in the posterior lateral neck, but we're also going to influence all the peripheral nerves that traverse that whole region across the shoulder as well. So whether that means tightness is going to contribute to nerve sensitization, whether it's going to be pulling when they move their neck or their shoulder, that's going to create symptoms, um, or it's just going to create a vulnerability and an increase the experience of symptoms that someone might experience related to a more local injury as well. So we can't forget about this whole quadrant as we go along. Um, other structures that I really want to highlight here are the cervical is the cervical plexus. So we've got our scalenes here, we've got the medial uh, the scalenus medius and anterior here. And I, you know just between those two guys, I'm going to have multi-select. Okay, so between those two muscles comes the cervical plexus. Those are everyone knows the uh, you know the, the brachial plexus. Everybody knows all the different cords and you know and and, uh, and divisions and so forth. Or at least we're taught it. We've probably all forgotten it by now. But the reality is that all of these peripheral nerves go to the whole upper extremity. If there's a problem up there, chances are there's something going on in this region. It might be minor. It might not be that influential. But there's an area we need to pay very close attention to not only that but as you can see the anterior scalene is attached to the first rib what is that going to do to influence what's happening with the thoracic and how does the thoracic influence the neck we've got all these different peripheral nerves that are running through this area and we have to consider them now for those who maybe aren't quite as familiar with me thinking about the peripheral nerves um let me flip out of this for a second and and i can come back in if i need to So for those of you who don't know that much uh, about targeting the peripheral nerves and, and kind of my approach and understanding to that, the reality with the nervous system is that it does everything. It goes to the muscles to cause contraction. It goes to the sensory nerves. The sensory nerves are providing pain and temperature and touch information, proprioceptive information, a lot of important afferent information that's going to determine how we move and our experience of pain and function, okay? On the other side, it's going to provide... Support for the vascular system. There are sympathetic endings and and, uh, peripheral nerves that are contributing as well. So things like vascular function, things like uh, autonomic sensitization, CRPS type symptoms, changes in texture and trophism of the skin. All of this stuff is influenced directly by the peripheral nerves. What that means is that if the nerves aren't working properly, anything in that that I just m- mentioned can be dysfunctional. You can have weakness, you can have pain, you can have decreased temperature control, you can have decreased uh, sensory information. You can have decreased proprioception, which is huge for a lot of these people. You know the ones you're trying to retrain their scapula and they can't figure out what the hell is going on? Sometimes they're like motor morons, but sometimes they're not getting proper information because of old surgeries, because of old traumas, or because of disrupted nerve function in that area. So the bottom line is we have to pay close attention to what's happening at at the level of the nerves if we want to understand the way the body actually works, the way pain is actually transmitted um, and experienced as well. So that's why I spend so much time thinking specifically about the peripheral nerves. Um, and it serves us very well. Now, for someone who has electroacupuncture as one of their tools, fantastic. Really, really massive, beneficial tool for us to be able to do that. I know a bunch of you here today uh, use that, and we, we've got a lot of specific uh, ways that we can, we can tolerate that. For the purpose of these kind of discussions, I really like to focus so much more on process. Everyone wants to know, what do I do to treat this problem? Where do I put the needle? Where do I put my hands? I want to give you guys much more than that in terms of clinical reasoning advice, understanding the anatomy, understanding the functional movement, and then let you use the tools that you've got at your disposal. And wherever you've acquired those tools, your desire to get new ones, there's lots of options. I've got lots of suggestions. So please use me as a resource. But I really think the thing that's lacking is less the technique to address the problem and more about what we need to do to understand the problem. And that's why I focus this way. So back to the peripheral nerves, if we can understand fundamentally that the peripheral nerves play a big role and we understand the neuroanatomy of where they are and where they go that allows us to bridge into what tools do i have at my disposal to address the nervous system and what tools do i need to acquire to address the nervous system better that is the conversation that we actually need to start having uh, much more than how do i treat this pain problem in front of me and if someone, again, you know, Brendan and Mike are two people who I've uh, done a lot of mentorship stuff with in the past. And as they'll know, you know, we it, it starts as, oh yeah, you know, it's standard shoulder pain, like it's here, and they're experiencing this thing, it's overhead, and it's da, da da da. And next thing we know, it's completely different from the last two shoulder pain patients with the exact same type of symptom that we experienced, based on the 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 function of their neck, based on. Previous history, based on age and activity level, based on the way that they move or have not moved over time. So if we take all of that into context, we can develop an individualized treatment problem, uh, treatment uh, case and treatment plan for that individual. Um, So and then after that, we can tie in um, mobility, scapular rhythm. Um, you know, understanding the pain pattern in a little bit more detail, understanding the, the, the role of dysfunction of the tendon, understanding what the structural diagnoses uh, are and whether they're helpful, thoracic outlet and subacromial impingement. We can start to have me- meaningful conversations about whether those are relevant and exist. But if we don't have the fundamentals of understanding the peripheral nerves and understanding the role of the neck, then we can't even really have a detailed conversation about scapulothoracic rhythm because what controls a scapulothoracic rhythm? Muscles. Where are the muscles coming from? The cervical spine. Where are the proprioceptors allowing fine control of multiple motor groups they are coming from the, the cervical spine? So that's why it's so essential for us to understand those steps. And if we can do that, then we can jump into all the fun stuff that we want to. So when I said step one in this case, that was what I meant. We can't start to have meaningful conversations about this until we understand the ground rules we have to understand the way the body works from a physiological and a neuroanatomical standpoint before we can jump into the fun stuff and uh, and that's what i'm really happy to do now i'd love to to kind of break out a little bit more answer some questions and see where it takes us um so start to get some of your questions ready ideas and and follow-ups to those concepts uh ready last thing i want to do though is talk briefly more about some of the connections to the neck that and between the neck and the shoulder that i find most relevant So let's jump back in to my iPad. So here's what we're gonna do. The the last thing I really wanna dive into here is the kind of that trap, superior angle pain that I was describing earlier. This app does not really do it justice. Obviously, we can't move the scapula in three dimensions, which is really essential to understanding how this works in the actual body. But I'm gonna do the best that I can with what we've got. So I'm gonna hide, I think this hides a whole trap. It does, perfect. Okay, so there's a couple things that I really want to highlight here. Uh, just to orient you, we've got the spine of the scapula here. The superior angle is right there. It's actually anterior. It's anterior to the, the rest of the scapula. So it actually hooks quite a bit anteriorly. Um, and you can't really see it in this app, but that's actually really relevant to understand. Okay, so, um, let me keep going with this. Hold on. Okay, so there's this, the uh, this is the medial border here. We've got the rhomboids. Major is below, minor is above. Um, we've got uh, you know some of the uh, the erector spinae muscles there as well. Um, but I really want to focus on. Let me get out of here. I really want to focus on levator scapula. And the reason why I want to pay so, so much attention to it is that its attachment. and and relationship to everything else in the region is quite significant. We focus so much on the traps because it's most obvious, but the levator actually has a quite significant anterior pull to it, as you can see on the side angle. See how much it's pulling anteriorly? It means that it's going to be under tension Uh, when we bring our shoulders back. But most of the time, if we think about what's bringing everything forwards and up, we can think about pec minor and the fascia on the anterior side, but levator is actually gonna help to contribute to that quite a bit more than traps typically do. Its relevance is much more significant too when you talk about the proximity to everything I described earlier relating to the lateral neck. So the consideration here is pretty straightforward. Levator is much more intimately related to everything I mentioned earlier, which and because it's a a very strong muscle with a more anterior attachment, it's actually going to contribute a lot more to people's problems than we really give it credit for. The last piece, I'm going to see if I can find this. The... uh... The dorsal scapular nerve. Perfect. So the nerve that goes to the scapula is another reason why it's so essential to pay attention to. Number one, that is the uh, dorsal scapular nerve coming off of the cervical plexus. But I want to now fade others. I think this will look okay. Okay, so you guys can see where that's running right along the medial border of the scapula. It's going to be deep to it because it's innervating the rhomboids all the way down. Even though it's known as a motor nerve, there are sensory fibers related to it that are going to transfer and send sensory information such as pain. So it can be dysfunctional and create um, and generate some pain signals in and of itself through some complex physiological mechanisms. Um, But the relevance here is that how many people do you know that have pain that is here and then goes down that goes from that superior angle, that deep in the side of the shoulder, all the way down the back along the medial scapula? That area is so significant for so many people. You might even want, some people might even call it costovertebral type stuff because it's right along the, the joint between the vertebrae and the rib. So that whole... <laughs> someone's got to mute. Um, so what we have to think about in that case is how this levator scapula, how this dorsal scapular nerve is contributing to dysfunction here, which brings us, let's trace back. So someone's got pain underneath the medial board of the scapula, let's jump all the way back to this anterior lateral aspect of the neck where I just spent the first 20 minutes talking. What does this mean again? It means that people who have pain all the way down in there, we need to understand the trajectory of those sensory nerves. With our hands, with our needles, with our adjustments, with whatever we're doing to address these problems, with, with exercise, We want to try to influence this region as best we can, and if we can, not only are we going to affect things like people's symptoms, people's strength, etc., but we're also going to prevent a lot of the other uh, sequelae that can happen as a result of dysfunction here, whether it's now or in the future. It's a really great way to give extra value to a patient who may have symptoms reducing. If we're addressing problems here, we're preventing future injuries. That's a great insurance plan for us as therapists when the problem that we're treating doesn't come back because we've addressed the cause of the problem, not just the little nerve ending at the end where the symptoms are. So that's the value of understanding the neuroanatomy and putting it all together into a big picture. And uh, and hopefully that gives you a sense of how to address it. Now, you guys were asking me again, You know, this was supposed to be step one in treating shoulder problems, this is step one. If you understand all this stuff, your shoulder problems will be much easier to treat. And so yes, we can dive into all the local stuff, but understand this principle first. Get really good at this, and you'll address many, many, many of the upper extremity problems that you're going to be encountering. Um, okay, I'm going to hop out of this again. And uh, now let's uh, let's have some fun, guys. Um, let's we got to roll the Zoom chat today because I can't even see everybody. We got we got forty people right now. Um, and we've got, we've got some questions already written here. Um, so go ahead, start writing some questions into the chat. I'll be going to address as many of those as I can. If I can't, uh, we'll do another session or we'll, uh, I'll be able to reach out to you guys individually, like send me some messages afterwards. Um, now is a quick opportunity for me to just uh, ask anybody who hasn't. Um, if you can follow me on Instagram, that's great. Uh, I'm going to continue to have the, the, uh, groups, the numbers keep growing like this is awesome, but I might have to have some sort of like password, uh, privilege type stuff. So keep messaging me, um, to stay active and, and involved and I'm going to make sure that everyone gets in and, and we're going to try to do this twice a week. Um, and I'm going to ask you guys, once you've followed me, if you haven't already to do two things, one, I'm going to ask you what was most valuable out of the session today and two, what other topics you'd be interested in. Are there specific questions, specific areas of the body? So I want to try to hit as many of your needs as possible. We picked this one uh, after doing the HIP last week because so many people uh, requested it. So I'm going to answer questions as, re- as it uh, relates to what you've got. Um, okay, so uh, back to my first question, uh, Deborah on Facebook. Uh, I have several patients with whiplash injuries from sports. No neck pain, but weak hands and grips. Can you explain the connection? Okay, great. Um, The connection is quite obvious right then and there. Um, The cervical spine provides uh, the innervation to the upper extremity. Uh, And so what happens is if there's a specific trauma in sports... Not only is that going to create a a a local injury, either a structural injury or an inflammatory response in the area of the nerves, but it can actually do much more of that, depending on the severity of it. Um, On the minor scale, the local inflammatory response, the sensitization of the structures around it, like the muscles, is going to create uh, a vulnerability there. Um, What happens over time is when you had a trauma, the nerve system doesn't jump back to the way it was unless we give it the stimulation it needs. A lot of times, the reason one injury leads to subsequent ones is not because the trauma, the structural element doesn't completely recover, because many times it does, but it's rather the nervous system functionality is reduced afterwards. So if we have tools, Deborah, I know you have acupuncture, but whatever tools you've got to influence that, hands, needles, adjustments, exercises for stability, um, control of the whole upper quadrant as well on on a stability and movement pattern based on their activity levels, Uh, If we can do that properly, then we can create an environment for the nervous system to restore its highest level of function possible. So the connection is pretty straightforward. The response is a series of inflammatory and physiological changes that happen in the nervous system the response the way to address it is by influencing the um the the regions around it through a combination of hands meals, and exercise to maximize the uh, the function of that of that region over time while preparing them for their activity again it doesn't mean we need to do a lot of stuff with the hands although we want to consider that afferent information from the hands is going to feed into the area of the neck that was injured and help to restore the nervous system, nervous system activity as well. So we can't forget that by influencing things distal, we can influence things at a more proximal level, and vice versa. Distal injuries, such as we talked a little bit about foot and ankle, can influence what happens at the hip. In this particular scenario, we can always always influence the proximal stuff by by distal. It just might be lower. In our hierarchy that i talked about earlier there might be a more important target than that but it is somewhere in the mix and it's our job to uh, go through a clinical reasoning process to be able to address it good question um okay who's next second to a good subjective assessment second to a good subjective assessment how do you rule out the neck for shoulder and arm symptoms okay so this goes back to one of the first things i said sadaf which is i don't rule out the neck period the neck is involved in shoulder and arm problems it doesn't matter whether I you know hit my thumb with a hammer or I had a major trauma to my shoulder uh, or I've had a really I've had whiplash it doesn't matter Um, the neck is involved so it's not ruled out it is by definition by by anatomical measure I just described to you for the last half an hour it is ruled in 100% of the time that's how the body works Whether it becomes a high target or a low target is a matter of discussion, and that's something that we can talk briefly about. So on that note, um, things that are going to be lowering it in my hierarchy of things that I need to treat uh, would be scenarios where they've got great range of motion, no history of injury, uh, on palpation, good muscle tone, on observation, no major dysfunction there. Um, if, if those are all really positive, no, you know, no previous jaw issues, no previous whiplash or car accidents, if there's, if it's clear from that standpoint where there's no major traumas and good function of the tissue from a movement standpoint and from a palpation standpoint, then it definitely drops in my hierarchy for every one of those things that is added to. Uh, the list of the description of the patient, the more and more important it becomes again as I talked about right at the offset things like um, You know more chronic symptoms not related to the trauma if they even had one um, Or or other kind of acute inflammatory stuff that might trigger uh, my, my mind to think about it being much more of a, a local uh, 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 Sorry, a lot more of a segmental and, and a, a cervical problem Next question Sarah if you determine that a patient's shoulder pain does indeed stem from some problem in the nerves on the lateral side of the neck, what would be your next step? Um, great, great question because that's that's where we need to go from here, right? Um, how do we go from okay? We know that that area plays this could play a significant role. How do we go about it? Well, again, f- for me in my practice, I use a combination of hands-on techniques We we, um, we call micro-conditioning, which is uh, a very uh, specialized manual technique uh, taught at the McMaster Contemporary Acupuncture Program here uh, in Hamilton, Ontario. Um, outside of that, um, we uh, we can use, uh, again, I'll also use electroacupuncture as a tool that's very valuable in that area. If we don't have those available, hands-on techniques, whether it's massage, whether it's soft tissue release, is really valuable in that area. Um, you, you know, self-massage is something you can teach them. Mobilizations or even manipulations of the spine can be valuable at the levels that are relating to that problem, absolutely, uh, to influence the nervous system as well. Um, and then we've also got the ability to work on why that area developed a problem in the first place. If it's because of the trauma, well, that's a little different. We've gotta be a little bit more direct. But if there's dysfunction there with no trauma, but we know that posturally they've had a lot of issues, they're at their desk for long hours, their their activities are contributing to the problem, and we can find areas that are, are weak or are um, overactive or are just dysfunctional in general, we can go to those areas too. So we wanna first understand the problem, and then we can go in a lot of different related directions based on what they've got. One person it's going to be, um, I just need to improve scapular control. For someone else, it's a ton of work in in, in loosening up that area with hands on needles, etc. And for other people, it's just advice can be enough to get them out of those positions and movements that are creating a lot of the symptoms uh, that people are experiencing. Uh, Tom, what do we got? Determination if a hip limitation is relevant to a shoulder symptom. And some of the more common patterns, such as if it's more commonly ipsilateral or contralateral. Okay, and if there's such a trend as limited external rotation of the hip being related to limited external rotation of the shoulder, very interesting question. Um, so, in general, um, in general, I would say that there is. It is not my first. Um, it's not my first go-to. Very rarely. I see just as much contralateral as ipsilateral. I, in all the years, I've never noticed a consistent pattern where if I see it, I check the opposite hip or hip or the same hip. I do ask about dysfunction there because it gives me an idea. Um, but the reason why I don't pay extreme attention unless something triggers my, my, my knowledge, either watching them walk or hearing their history or understanding their activity, they're a baseball pitcher or a tennis player or something like that. Um, the reason it's not the highest priority for me is because for the hip to be to for hip forces to go all the way up to create dysfunction in the shoulder there has to be significant loss of adaptability what that means is that the forces of you walking let's say you know you've heard some stories maybe someone's you know they're walk you know their feet they put orthotics in and their neck pain got better okay so why couldn't the body distribute and handle the forces coming from the hip all the way up to the scapula there's all the different ribs there's all the different abdominal muscles there's all sorts of stability there's so much so many different ways that they can move and control things before problems arise and so if we encounter a scenario where we see a direct a, a link between the two that isn't based on their activity level or something that's a little bit more obvious Uh, We have to dive deeper into a bigger question of, wait, why are these two connected? You know, what is wrong with the trunk? Is it really rigid and there's just a lack of mobility? There's a podcast I released, I think it's number 11, where I talk about a runner who had a lot of thoracic um, um, kind of stability, like so much um, rigidity through the trunk that hip and shoulder were related. And I did a lower body treatment and his arm swing with walking was incredibly uh, better afterwards. So in cases where there's a lot of loss of dysfunction, I'm talking about a runner. I'm talking about someone who's older. I'm talking about someone who's just beating up their body or moves really poorly. Then yeah, hip stability can play a significant role. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, it's, it's not my first go-to unless something really triggers or I'm just, it's not adding up in my, in my, uh, my books. I, I'm much more likely to try to restore air, uh, functionality to the scapular region, the cervical region and the actual glenohumeral region first um, because there's enough adaptability there usually to manage whatever dysfunction is coming up from the hip. In my, in my athletes and my pro athletes and the people I work with who are more competitive at a higher level, then yeah, absolutely. Um, I have to look at all of those things down the road. But if they're coming in with an acute issue with their shoulder, uh, I'm still probably going to address that first. But if they're if my job is to prevent injury in the long term, and that's what they're that's what they're paying me for, then I consider all of that stuff and I make links and I try to figure out. Okay, even though your shoulder's complaining a bit right now, I know that the, for long term, if I address your hip, it'll impact when I get to your shoulder. Um, but I think there's enough uh, opportunity for most of us to be able to address the shoulder without um i've got a question here on instagram i'm gonna, gonna hit first can i talk a little bit about the axillary nerve and how it affects capsular pain um good question um the way i look at that is well the axillary nerve provides innervation to deltoid to um to teres minor and then also to the uh the glenohumeral joint and uh it's an important Nerve Because it's one of the larger nerves in that region, a lot of the posterior shoulder is innervated by the axillary nerve. Um, and so we have to consider that uh, in, in anybody with shoulder related problems, and we're talking with the local stuff, we didn't dive too much into the local stuff today. Um, but especially for posterior shoulder related stuff um, or weakness with deltoid in any different plane, uh, we have to pay close attention to it. Its particular role um, with capsular pain is going to vary because all the different peripheral nerves, the supraclavicular nerves, the suprascapular nerve, the axillary nerve, they're all going to provide innervation to that joint. And so we can't it's very difficult for us to pinpoint one uh if we have um like there are some some um, anesthesiology um texts and resources that are quite interesting i've explored a couple of them that actually have specific segments of the capsule, capsule of the joint that are well this is this part of the joint this quarter of the of the glenoid is innervated by the superscapular and this quarter is by the axillary it's quite interesting not super relevant for most practitioners who aren't invasive like that, Um, but it is kind of interesting nonetheless. So I wouldn't give it any more credit um, than any of the other ones. I would look at the movement dysfunctions, but know that it's definitely involved. The question is, where is it in the hierarchy? And you're going to look for um, deltoid-related problems, posterior shoulder, um, deep posterior shoulder-related stuff as well. And um, and, and, And those are going to be the two things that probably guide me to spend a lot of time there. Uh, although there are, there's a lot more levels we can get into that, that we can't without a body and, and more specific case. Um, questions. What do we got? Got A couple more here. Uh, Kevin, some of us are doing virtual care. What are some tools to treat suspected dorsal scapular nerve issues without manual therapy or Acu? That's a great question. Um, because, you know, the reality is we don't always have these, these tools and we're trying to give people support from all over the place. Um, you know, for dorsal scapular nerve dysfunction, we have to think about why. Why is there? Why are there problems there? And and at the end of the day, you know, we think about the lateral neck and the superior angle. But we also think about scapular control, right? Because it goes to the rhomboids, because it goes to dorsal um, the levator scapula. Those are two of the major movers of the scapula, along with pec minor, along with traps. What that means is we have to think about everything involved in scapular control that's serratus anterior as well and pressing and and, and bringing in protraction that's bringing in depression that's working on scapular control going overhead we've got a lot of those little elements that we have to pay close attention to so uh, my advice for anyone with dorsal scapular nerve related issues is um, scapular control in all sorts of different planes do your best to assess which ones are dysfunctional and address them accordingly Um, and on top of that um, you know, self soft tissue release is great. Lacrosse ball, awesome. If they don't have that. Tennis ball. If they don't have that, a doorknob. Like what they can do to do gentle. But prolonged soft tissue release over that area can have a lot bigger effect than just like sticking, you know, a knife in it or like sticking a really aggressive blunt object aggressively, even though it feels good at the time. Gentler, more prolonged soft tissue work is going to be more effective um, in management, especially when we believe the peripheral nerve is much more involved than, than just a structural dysfunction or just a trigger point or something like that. Uh, Lester, any specific physical assessment you would do for a supraclavicular nerve involvement? No, um, supraclavicular nerve involvement, because it's a sensory nerve, we're going to rely on symptoms. What that means is, uh, the best indication that there's a specific dysfunction of the supraclavicular nerves is the symptom they're experiencing. Is there tenderness? Is there sensitivity? Is there tension through the anterior lateral neck? Um, if so, the supraclavicular nerves are involved, um, by definition. That's again, just how it works. Um, whether it's again, a really high order problem or not depends on everything else we've just talked about for the last 45 minutes or so um so it's it's not quite as clear on the surface whether it is involved or not uh specifically it just we know it has its role and we need to understand that it has the role and that's also influencing what's happening at the clavicle both the SC, joint, the SC joint and the AC joint, are innervated by that, that, those nerves, which means we just need to understand this whole region. We need to understand what's happening with the pecs. So we might not treat the supraclavicular nerve specifically, but understand, for instance, that the symptom they're experiencing that is impingement is really pain on the anterior of the shoulder, which is innervated by, oh yeah, the supraclavicular nerve. So their symptoms might not be because of a structural impingement or some blockage of, you know, related to the long head of the biceps, it can be sensitization of the supraclavicular nerves. So we don't need to freak out and treat it like it's an inflammatory process and do traction on their their shoulder, on their humerus. All we've got to do is understand why did this nerve become sensitized? How can we create a better load tolerance in that region? And as a result, we're going to be able to create changes, whether we have the tools to have local uh, sensory nerve changes like electroacupuncture or we don't. So we've got a lot of of options there. Again, it comes down to if we understand the problem, then the next step is, okay, well, what are the contributing factors to it? But we have to start by understanding that the nerves by definition play a role. And that clears our mind from a lot of the structural diagnoses that we often get plagued with. Um, All right, what do we got here? A couple more. In line with Lash's question, uh, would the nerve most likely be implicated if swelling is present in the triangle between upper fiber traps and SCM? Good question, Sharice. The answer is absolutely. So to to reiterate the question here, um, kind of a follow-up on the last question is, are the nerves most likely implicated if there is swelling present in the triangle between the upper fibers of traps, the clavicle, and the SCM? And the answer is yes. When I talked briefly earlier, I mentioned tissue changes, whether it's tension, whether it's puffiness, whether it's hypersensitivity to touch, tenderness, if you will, Um, If any of those signs are, are evident in that region, it elevates very, very high for me in terms of things we need to treat. Even in the absence of a specific trauma or complaint, if I'm feeling changes on that side compared to normal or compared to the other side, normal being what I would expect for a person of their age and body type, um, I absolutely uh, will spend a lot of time there with electroacupuncture and hands-on. A hands-on definitely would be adva- advantageous for anybody and probably more so than acupuncture, to be honest, especially if we, if we have to try to clear out soft tissue edema and puffiness and swelling in, in that region. It's extra valuable to use hands-on in that particular case gently, but you know, you're definitely a, a really valuable place, place to go. Um, definitely have had patients where um that is definitely the number one case and i don't even touch their shoulder they might have whatever posterior lateral anterior shoulder pain whatever it is i don't even get to that because i'm working on the lateral neck and they're already feeling substantially better so there are times when i might spend my full one hour treatment doing hands-on in the lateral neck didn't touch their actual shoulder joint itself other than to move it around while i was doing you know testing at the beginning or moving it while i was doing soft tissue work and the result is a massive change that lasts in addressing the problem, which is part of why I can be so confident when I tell you that that reason is so important. It's because sometimes I literally just treat that and the problem is drastically improved. And it's not just a, let me see what happens. It's, I predict that to be the case and then the response is according. It's not a matter of, let me just try something and see if it works. So that's how I can give you the confidence. I encourage you to try stuff, to do something, to, to test to do something and then retest. So you're gonna learn a link about whether someone in that particular case uh, can be influenced by a treatment such as blank to an area such as blank over this duration. So you do a lot of test retest to give yourself the most valuable information you need uh, to develop your clinical experience and clinical reasoning much faster. Um, but hopefully you get to a point where you're like, I think this is going to g- going to happen as a result of blank that I did. and. Once you start to get into that level of predicting it and reassessing and being right, then it creates this positive feedback loop, and you start to develop that clinical experience much faster. It takes time, but it, uh, it it definitely pays off over time. Uh, all right, we're we're still rolling on a couple of questions. Anna, I work in ICU. I work with ICU patients with severe proximal myopathy, ICU acquired weakness, and shoulder weakness with little. Active range of motion, but distally, very functionally. Besides passive range and active range, what's the best way to get those nerves and muscles activated with limited resources? Okay, that's a tough question. Uh, uh, Again, I'm lucky enough in my clinic to have the resources I feel are are most valuable and my patients are not nearly as deteriorated. And I assume that most of the people here are kind of in the same boat. Um, So active and passive range are a great way to do that. One of the things I can add is that, again, this is nervous system work especially when you're talking about this acquired weakness it's nervous system mediated by you know by definition this is just how it works so what we can consider in that particular case is that proprioception is really really valuable as an afferent signal to stimulate the nervous system even better so what we can think about is you know feedback to their hands, gripping and pulling lifting themselves up, anything that's gonna give extra afferent information to them while they're participating in activity, is gonna send more stimulation to the central nervous system, more stimulation to the spinal cord, more integration of information on a nervous system level. And as a result, we're hopefully gonna get a little bit more uptake on those responses. So passive range is a lot more difficult to to manage. Um, Active range, you can work with whatever range you've got, but if they've got really good function distally, you know, gripping, pressing, whatever positions you need to get them in. You almost have to think of them as kind of our neurological population, truly, where, you know, um, stimulation, you know, rubbing on the hand and helping assisted weight bearing and all that kind of stability stuff is going to be really valuable as best they can uh, to try to increase the afferent information to try to overall kind of rewrite what the nervous system is doing and teach a pattern rather than just specific muscle groups. Uh, All right, we'll be for time here. All right, we got another question or two here. Uh, Can talk a little bit about scaling dysfunction and tightness as a contributor to shoulder issues. If there's tightness or restriction in the scalenes, do you directly address them through release and accu or indirectly through segmental and distal? That's a question from Mike. Good question, man. Um, Now, what do we got here? Um, Yes, so the way I look at... Uh, at, at the scalenes is uh, twofold. If you want to go a little bit more in depth um, by understanding the, the, the tension there and the soft tissue environment around those scalenes, it can give us a lot of information into what's happening at the level uh, of those cervical nerves that are popping off at that same level. So if we find a lot of soft tissue dysfunction there, then I definitely need to spend time We're talking tension. We're talking that puffiness we described earlier. We're talking hypersensitivity. Um, The other thing we didn't mention is scapular passive range get them sidelined, you know, taught how to grab the scapula and move it around. Depending on what they can and can't do in all these different planes, especially down and back, we can get information about what's happening here. If my scapula doesn't go back down and back. Remember how I showed you earlier how the levator is pulling anteriorly and superiorly. So if this is a problem, chances are tension is created here. Scalings also contribute to that. So if there's dysfunction here, we might see it manifested in a decrease in passive range, posteriorly and inferiorly of the scapula. So that would be another reason why we want to improve tension in that area. Where exactly? Your hands are going to have to guide you. So absolutely, I spend a lot more time say in the neck doing local stuff around that region to improve soft tissue mobility um, than going to the segmental or, or, or distal work. And by that, I know you mean the multi-segmental treatment, the, the needles into the paraspinals um, of, the, uh, of the cervical and the cervical thoracic regions. So um, long and short of it is I find that I can get a very strong segmental effect. but Because we're so close to the origin of the peripheral nerves, in the lower extremity, we can't get as close to them because they're so deep within the abdominal cavity. So we can't have quite the same magnitude of of impact on the segment because it's so much more distal. In the neck, because it's all right there, all of the nerves are right there, by us just treating locally, we're having a much stronger segmental effect. Um, Okay. Any other questions? I can take two more questions and then we got to run. So anybody else got anything left? Now is the time. Someone's asking, "Will this be available to watch later on?" Yeah, I'm gonna leave the uh, I'm gonna leave the live up on Instagram and on Facebook, and uh, I'm gonna try to put put together at least some of the greatest hits from this uh, for you guys turn this into a podcast as well so stay tuned because i'm gonna hopefully have this in a couple different uh different avenues for you I, I want you guys to be able to learn from this i know i'm throwing a lot at you so being able to digest it afterwards is going to be even more valuable and uh, i was telling uh, i was telling uh, somebody earlier today that when i watch the over of these videos i find that i learned something from something i said because it just came out spontaneously but it's such a valuable point so i think that uh that you can get something out of watching these a couple times even if you you've been here during the live or watched watched uh, um, you know, on one of the streams. Uh, okay. Michelle volleyball players, chronic unilateral shoulder overuse and pain, where to start? They won't rest very often for very long. Great. Great point. Because we talked generally, we talked about so many different points, but I didn't really dive into, okay, so what if it has been a specific trauma? Like how do we manage that? Again, chronic by definition means that it is, has a segmental it has a cervical role so before we go anywhere we have to understand the status of the neck previous injuries soft tissue all the stuff we just talked about we have to start there and understand that area and treat it especially because we're dealing with someone who's got a lot going on um is going to need it for an extended period of time and has very high demands Um, we have to be much more tactical about how we go about the process of understanding and addressing these kinds of problems. We can't just go at it with you know trying to just calm it down and put ice on it. It's not gonna be a sustainable um, treatment plan for someone like that. We have to think plan what's going on, exactly how, what are the levels, we have to work ground up and really try to address it. So in that specific case, what that means is start by understanding the control the, the function of the cervical region from the soft tissue standpoint, from a mobility standpoint. Next, we've got to think about scapular control and do the exact same thing. Mobility, stability in different planes and the movement of the shoulder up overhead. We have to understand, do they have stability through that range? Chances are they don't. They're just whipping themselves through without the, the requisite stability. So they need to do a lot of work to stabilize and strengthen there. They also need to do some warm-up stuff. So those muscles are activated and ready to go as soon as we get started, as soon as they start to move. So 100% of the time, we've got to go through those steps. Um, but chances are they've got to do a lot more self-care if they want to take that much out of their body. At the end of the day, there's no shortcut to someone who has high demands for the function of their body, and we have to get them to buy in if they want to succeed. If they don't, sometimes, as I was telling you um, last week, you can give them all the tools, but if they won't do it, either their performance is going to suffer or they're going to get injured. And maybe that's when they finally realize they need to do the self-care, and I know uh, plenty of people uh, who've gone through that case and have the same experience um last question for the shoulder would you use more open or closed end movements do you find one more valuable than the other ian's asking that i assume you mean um open kinetic chain and closed kinetic chain it depends on the activity the volleyball player a lot of it has to be open kinetic chain based on what they're doing um that doesn't mean we can always start them there We might have to start early on with more weight bearing based um, exercises until they can create enough stability and proprioception such that they can activate those muscles to progress to more difficult movements. Some people can get right into the uh, the open kinetic chain stuff. Others have more difficulty and need to spend way more time in closed kinetic um, and just find that, you know, push up plus type movements, you know, even just on all fours, just working on cat camel till they can understand how the scapula works. It depends from person to person. Um, and so at the end of the day, we, we've kind of got to personalize it to them, but I like early on, or if it's sport specific for them to do more stability stuff in closed kinetic, but then moving to open based on their activities for someone who never does open kinetic stuff, other than lifting and their daily activities. It's not quite as essential for us to retrain as aggressively, although they should have some proficiency if we want to prevent injuries going forward. Um, okay. Let's, uh, let's wrap it up there. My Instagram live is ending in five seconds. So that's going to cut off. Um, but I'm going to ask you guys, um, again, for those three things, if you haven't followed me, please do. I'm looking for, I think we have 46 people in here right now, which is amazing. And some on Facebook and Instagram as well. Um, please follow me on Instagram. I want to know what you found most valuable today. And I want to know what other topics you want to hear. And I expect to hear from every single one of you. Uh, I'm really glad to do this. I want to keep doing this. I'm going to be back on Friday, same time Friday, four 30. We've got another one coming up. I'm going to let you guys know what the, uh, the topic is once, uh, you know, over the next day or so, but uh, please make sure you tune in again, Friday, four 30. Uh, I think I'm going to get the date right. I believe it's April 17th. So check that out. And I want to hear from each one of you guys. Cause I'm, I'm hoping to put more stuff out. Uh, remember what you give me is what I can give back and I can tailor it to what you you're looking for. So the more information I have, the better I can help you. Sounds good. Thanks guys. Have a good one.